In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. About 15 years ago, there was a film, uh, Orlando Bloom and Kirsten Dunst starred. It's a film called Elizabeth Town. And it's a story about a, a guy that is played by Orlando Bloom whose life is a mess. Uh, a series of events have happened in rapid succession and um, everything is tearing apart at the seams. And then to compound matters, his father dies. And so he has to drive across country um, to reunite with his family who you might say put the fun in dysfunction. He has to confront his family and his past and at first he thinks that what his life needs is just maybe a few cosmetic changes, just a little a tweak here or there and, and then things will be right as rain. And, but in time he, he starts to discover that something more is necessary, something perhaps more drastic, something that reaches to the foundations of his life. And I want to show you a, a clip from that film that may be kind of odd. It, it's, it's from a moment when all of the family has gathered for the funeral and they're just sort of gathering around the table and, and when you have a big family reunion there's much kids and, and kids tend to not sort of be aware of the moment. Hey, we're mourning here, right? Um, they're just running around like uh, bouncing off the wall. And in this moment, somebody has the bright idea about what might collect them and calm them. And so we're going to see this clip and as it unfolds, realize that what they're about to see is a metaphor for perhaps the entirety of the movie. So watch this. Hi, my name's Rusty. I helped build this house a long time ago, but wood-eating insects called termites have compromised the integrity of this once fine structure. So today, I'm gonna blow it up. If I blow this house up, will you promise to behave and mind your mommy and daddy? Yes. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Good. Let's blow it up. Fire in the hole! Three. Two. Let's build a new house. <laughs> and you're all thinking, have they set charges to the room? The, the moment is there to calm the kids down and to captivate their attention, but also to motivate them to behave because they're just acting like kids, right? But the scene is, again, a metaphor for the crisis of the storyline and the person who's the protagonist. He thought he could maybe just add a little window dressing here and, and shore up the cornice boards here and whatever it might be, but he comes to realize, no, something more foundational. <laughs> you almost like got to blow the whole thing up again. Something's got to get down into the roots of the matter. We are in our third week of listening to a very short book of four prophetic sermons that the prophet Haggai offered to his people, Israel, and the thrust of the entire book 
is to encourage Israel to rebuild what they have lost. But what he will argue in our text today is that something is needed more than just gathering the wood and the stone and getting busy. Something else is required, something more. And, and in the last few weeks, we have shown you a picture of what we imagine to be uh, our life together in the way of rebuilding in, in the near future. What will it mean to rebuild our common life together? And that's an important question, but we shouldn't go any further down that road and press into what the peculiarities of this vision looks like until we consider something more fundamental. And Haggai is going to help us do that today. And I think he's going to share with us two things that even though they are ancient words, they are very relevant to our condition here in the moment we find ourselves in. We're still in chapter 2. We're going to listen to just 10 verses from his third sermon he gives to Israel. So we're in Haggai chapter 2, starting in verse 10. I wonder if you would stand and hear. Our central text is from Haggai 2, verses 10 through 19. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priest about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with this fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? And the priests answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? Then Haggai answered and said, so is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. Now, then, consider this from this day onward. Before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, and yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. You can sit. If you're just joining us as we consider this book, there's context that will make that rather obscure set of words maybe make a little bit more sense. The context of Haggai's prophecy, those four sermons that occurred right around 520 BC. Israel, whether depending on where you lived in Israel, you were exiled to a foreign country for any number of decades. And then in the year 586, Persia which was now the big kid on the block, 
decided that Israel could go back home. You can go. You can go in 536 B.C. So Israel does. And they return home under the leadership of a governor named Zerubbabel and a high priest named Joshua. And so begins the rebuilding effort. They've been in exile. They've been dislocated. Life has been interrupted. Everything has changed for them. They're back. They're back in the land and they're trying to rebuild. And so they do. And then, like every other building project, it hits snags. But the snags aren't anything do, uh, attributable to a supply chain. Uh, people don't like that they're back in the world. They start intimidating them. And then, and then those who are in authority start decreeing, you can't rebuild anymore. And so the project ceases. And that goes on for 12 years. And then everything lifts and the sky's clear. And, and then Israel can kind of get back to work. But by that point, they're in a habit. A habit of not rebuilding. They've kind of looked at things and thought, eh, we seem to be getting by. What's the point? We're fine. You're fine. Are you fine? I'm fine. And they've given up on the task. And, and that's where Haggai steps up and says, Oh, friends, do you see what you're doing? And so in the first week, we heard Haggai say, Build Rebuild this temple, which has nothing to do with the building itself or, or less than they think it does. It has everything to do with rebuilding their common life. It has everything to do with recovering their sense of identity, their sense of community, their sense of purpose about what it means to be a people of God. Rebuild that. You let that go. You let go of everything and far more than you imagine. And then last week, as you heard Andrew preach through the first part of chapter 2, you hear that not only is, is Israel called to, to build up, now they're called to bear up under the challenges that will inevitably, they'll inevitably face. There will be disappointments in the project. There will be a sense in which you, you put your shoulder into it and you look around and you go, is this, is this accomplishing anything? <laughs> is what we've got rather a, a more modest outcome? And so he calls them to bear up, but, but not in the sense that God is just saying, get to it. Three times in those first nine verses of chapter two, you hear the Lord say, be strong, be strong, be strong. In other words, he is giving them a strength by the truth of his spirit in the cause of his peace that is meant to, to compel them to act, but also to sustain them in it. This morning, as you heard from those brief 10 verses, you realize that, that Haggai is here to say, um, this is more than just signing up and showing up and gathering up you, in fact, need to gather up your heart. That we need to consider it afresh. That there is something more that is necessary of this rebuilding project than just laying out the plans and coming up with a process. And the way he gets Israel to that point and the way that I think it, it has resonance with our condition is he, he, he does this little parable. He, he invokes the the, those who know the law most, the scribes, to come down and, and do a consult. And he, and he paints these two very vivid pictures. And he's, he's borrowing imagery from the book of Leviticus. And he says, look, scenario number one. You know, there's meat that you, you sacrifice, right? And, and that meat is set aside for that intention. And that's called holy meat. It's, it's designated for that. It's delegated for that. And if you have that and you, you have it in the fold of your, your robe, right? And, and that, that meat, comes in contact with anything else, food, wine, bread, does that stuff also become holy? Survey says, scribes, no. 
doesn't do that. He says, all right, well, riddle me this, Batman. Here's your second scenario. You touch a dead corpse, and then you touch anything else. The uncleanliness that comes by way of touching a corpse. Remember the, remember the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? Priest, Levite, they walk by on the other side. They see what may be a dead body. Why don't they want to touch him? P Jesus doesn't say really in his parable, but we could probably intuit that he's saying maybe they're concerned about becoming ritually unclean, and that is ineligible to participate in the worship of the people for a season. You touch a dead body, you become ceremonially unclean for a moment. Survey says, scribes, if I touch that and then I touch other stuff, does that stuff become unclean? Survey says, yes. All right, what's all that about? This is not just tedious uh, explanation of the law. If anything, look, friends, if there's, <laughs> in the last 18 months, I have washed my hands more times in the last 18 months than I did probably in the first 40 years of my life. Right? And if there is anything that we have learned about hand washing the last 18 months is this. You already knew it, but you, we, we all feel it now. We all feel this, oh, i got to wash my hands. Right? You wash your hands, and you wash them well, and then what happens? If I walk up to you, and I touch your lips, <laughs> do your lips become clean? No, they do not. But does my hand need to get washed again? Yes, it does. Right? The cleanliness of my hand is not transferable to the uncleanliness of your lips. But boy, the uncleanliness of your lips is transferable to the cleanliness of my hand. What's going on there? What is this thing about holiness and, and cleanliness and unholiness and uncleanliness? It's, he's not just being um, sort of pedantic. He's not just sort of saying, now remember this class, there's a point. And it has more than just understanding the law. And I think it really comes down to how you and I think of our public world and our private world. I think it has to do with the things that are visible and the things that are invisible. And I think maybe where he's getting to us in this sense is, 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 is at least this one thing. Look, you shouldn't let your public visible acts become a substitute for your inner private reality. You shouldn't confuse the two. Whatever public visible practices of piety, of, of religion, of faith, whatever it might be. You know, those things can serve your inner heart. There are some days where you will need to pray when you don't want to pray. Why? Because in the prayer, it serves your heart. There are days where you will not want to show up here. But in showing up here, or in, or in gathering for worship, wherever you may be, you may not want to, you may just prefer to stay in bed, but in doing so, it serves your heart. Those public, visible acts, they can serve your private world, but you can't think of them as substitutes for your inner reality. Just as the holy meat cannot transfer its holiness to other things, you ought not to think of your public activity as some sort of substitute for your inner world. Next month, we're going to start listening to the gospel according to Mark. And in chapter 7, Jesus is going to invoke the Old Testament where he says, the Lord says, they have me on their lips, but their hearts are far from me. There's a sense in which you can convince yourself that everything that you're doing, which has all the marks of an interior reality, which actually can be a concealment of what is not there. And it's dangerous to let our public world 
become a substitute for our private attention to our private world. That's, that's one implication here of bringing up these, these funky allusions to the Old Testament. The other one is this. You shouldn't think that what you conceal in private isn't going to have an effect on what you do in public. Let me say that again. Maybe I'll take out the double negatives. You should realize that what you conceal in private will have an effect on what you do in public. Now you will learn to practice and it will take great effort to let what you conceal when no one else is looking to prevent that from spilling over into your public world. But at some point you'll become exhausted. And those things will find you. Paul says to to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3, uh, some men's sins are obvious and they go before them, but other men's sins come out later. What we conceal in our private world has an uncanny ability to finally manifest itself in our public doings. And Haggai is out to warn Israel of that truth. And, and Haggai is out to warn you and me of that truth as well. And, and it's, not like, it's not like there weren't clues. I know that all kind of exists out here in the ether, in this abstract thing. But there, there were clues that something was amiss. And, and he even knows it. He even says it. And, and it's almost like, uh, you know, long before, how, did, how does the, the nursery rhyme go? Old Mother Hubbard went to the cupboard to give the poor dog a bone. When she came there, the cupboard was bare, and so the poor dog had none. That's from the the early 19th century. But that exactly communicates what Haggai is warning Israel of. You you went to the cupboard, and you expected to find this much grain. And you get there, and you go, where did it all go? And then then you went to the vat to draw out whatever wine you wanted, and, and you get there, and you go, where did it all go? You gotta, you gotta jump inside the vat and you know, bring out the dregs. Where did it all go? They were diminished. He is actually saying that God frustrated their economic life, their very attempt at flourishing because they had confused their public and private worlds. They had let what they did publicly, their overt demonstrations of piety. Remember what Jesus says? Oh, there's all sorts of reasons why you might want to pray in public and give alms in public and fast in public. Why? To be seen, Jesus says. And he says, if that's your reward, you'll get it. And Israel fell into that trap. And if Israel had begun to forget that what they do in private has an effect on their public world, they will be diminished. Here's here's the reality for you and me. If we believe either of those untruths, we will be diminished. If you lie consistently, it will warp your ability to see the truth and people will not trust you. If you use words like weapons, to shame, to stigmatize, to treat as others, it will change you and you will be diminished and you will wonder why you are hungry. See, we're, here's where he's driving at. The first thing I think Haggai is out to tell us is this. We probably shouldn't think about rebuilding without at first some measure of repenting. That for us to rebuild, 
that's, it's great that I have a, a, I have a slide. Oh, look, he has a slide and it has five circles on it. That's wonderful. But rebuilding is more than just coming up with a plan and then trying to micromanage the details. That what Haggai is out to tell Israel is what Haggai think maybe should be echoing in our heads there, that we probably shouldn't think there can be any rebuilding without some measure of repenting. Now, apart from what he says in chapter 1, Haggai doesn't even really tell Israel in that moment what they should repent of. He did say in chapter 1, here's your problem. You have busied yourself with your own world and forgot everything else out behind it. And you have forgot the larger world, the world that your Father in heaven has made. But you have nailed the part about taking care of yourselves. He doesn't otherwise specify what Israel should repent of. What does that have to do with us? Last week, Andrew quoted to you from an article that was written a few weeks ago by uh, a theologian named Russell Moore. He's a real knowledgeable fellow. He works in an ethics and public policy center. And in that same article, he said this, we see young evangelicals walking away not because they do not believe what the church teaches, but because they believe the church itself does not believe what it teaches. Now that's at risk of oversimplification. There's plenty of things that younger folks might look at and go, I ain't, no, thank you, no. But in large part, I think there's something to be said for what he is saying in that there is a truth that if I hear us say one thing and then turn right around and hear us opt for a very different thing, no wonder they have a certain suspicion that they then use as a justification to say, what are those things? Where does the repentance begin? You never watched, you know, Wheel of Fortune? And you know when you get to the, the final challenge round, they got the person out there that's done so well and, and they, they get to, you know, get to the final clue. And you remember how they, they'll, they'll spot you the first five letters and a first vowel, R, S, T, L, N, and the vowel E, right? I'll spot you some possibilities for where we as a body and the church at large might have to repent of that I myself need to consider that. Maybe we need to repent of thinking that our political, national, or family loyalties is somehow greater than what our allegiance is to the Lord. Maybe we need to repent of forgetting that the Lord has a claim on us that's even greater than our souls. He has a claim on our whole selves. Maybe the church at large, and maybe we ourselves to some extent, have forgotten that any body of believers who has very little concern for anything beyond itself has in effect almost set their own explosives for the destruction of their own life. Maybe we've forgotten that in a room even like this, while it's great to greet one another as we know, do we ever greet somebody that we don't? From the large to the small, there's any number of places in which we ourselves might have to ask ourselves, if we're going to rebuild, where do we need to repent? And, oh, beloved, please don't hear me finger-wagging. In fact, this week at our session meeting with elders and pastors and staff who were present, I I walked them through the first part of this passage and I asked them as shepherds of this body, where do you think we might need to repent? And I 
heard a variety of different possibilities. Some felt like maybe we haven't done a good job of listening. Others wondered if we have unintentionally, but rather profoundly adopted a critical spirit. But I just want to pay you an excerpt from our session meeting. It was on a Zoom call. Just a sample of where a couple in our midst had an idea of where we as a body and we as individuals might need to take to heart what it means to repent. So just listen in on the Zoom call for a second. Well, I think it's interesting how in this, in this one piece of it that I would repent and of not, um, not actively going out of my way and actively moving into love others, not, not meaning, uh, just not actively seeking, pursuing, how are you doing? What's going on? Love ya, pursuing. But I, I, I would, I would say that the reason I feel compelled to even say that is I think that is as a church body that is a repentance that I would join our church body in that we will we will grow in in faith when we are doing and not just receiving Sunday morning um, we are we are experts at Sunday morning and we are still learning about Monday morning um, I'll, I'll share a, a story. I had a, a chance, um, I guess it was just three days ago, to take a, a hike with my wife. And um, we were um, hiking along the trail and we ran into a father and a son. The father was about 70. The son was probably around mid-40s. And we kind of leapfrogged on the trail a few times and we got to this lake. Um, and we ended up bumping into the father again and just talked to him for a little while. And he was, it was really interesting. He just kind of opened up and shared that he was a person of faith. And, you know, sometimes in life, I think God sends people, sometimes total strangers, just to send us a message. And so we were just chatting. And he said that one of the things that he did the last, I think he said two or three years of his life, is not only did he stop watching the news, <laughs> but he stopped reading about news and politics completely. Mm. And he said that that really allowed him to concentrate on relationships and family. And I've been thinking about that the last few days because I, I have to admit, I love knowing a lot of things about the world we live in, politics, social issues. And it's very easy for me, especially with access to unlimited amounts of information over the internet to just spend my time reading about things. I can go down a rabbit hole and it's a wonderful sort of pleasurable intellectual exercise and I can form all kinds of opinions, but I'm not loving anyone when I'm doing that. I'm not glorifying God. I'm not building relationships. And I think the pandemic has made it worse for, for a lot of us. And so I, I remember where I just, I've been thinking about that and wondering what if I just took half of that time, kind of like uh, Brad was saying, and sent a text to someone or called someone or reached out to someone or reconnected 
with somebody. And I, I've, I've been really convicted of that. And so I would, I would repent of being, um, you know, being consumed by the things of this world that, that aren't really part of God's kingdom in the end. Applicable? At that point, we, we shut off uh, Alan's mic because I didn't want him to talk anymore about not watching the news. <laughs> but I get it. Uh, Thoreau said, you people read the times, you probably should read the eternities more. And I can fall prey. And no doubt, friends, the last 18 months have invited a new set of rhythms that make us far more insular and more concentrated in our own little private worlds. And, and we have to, just as Israel does, to have to drift. We have to, we have to push back against what we've been in, you know, cultivated to do so naturally and insensibly and, and slowly. Where do we need to repent? Any number of possibilities. Maybe, maybe the one thing we need to repent of most of all is forgetting the gospel. That it is enough. That your worst fear is answered by the gospel. That the thing that you are most angry about, the gospel has something to say to you in that. And this might be weird, but I, one, one person that helped remind me of the gospel this week was a comedian named Norm MacDonald who died about 10 days ago, and I, even as I mention that word, please don't go Google Norm MacDonald because, <laughs> um, well, let's just say you'll find stuff that you'll go, oh, gosh, get that out of my ears. <laughs> um, but he was a man who, who thought long and hard about faith and about Christ. And I don't know exactly when he said this, but towards the end of his life, he kind of struggled with that. And he, and he said this, he said this, some people believe that man is divine, like kind of a hippie idea. I, I can't believe that because I know my own heart, and I know that's not true. Other people believe that we're wretched, like the cynics or the atheists would believe we're all just wretched nothingness, just animals, just creatures. I can't believe that. It doesn't make any sense that we're just beasts. I will say that Christianity has this interesting compromise where we're both divine and wretched. And there's this middleman that's the savior that through him we can become divine, but we're born wretched. I, I kind of like that one because it sort of makes sense. Huh. How do you look at the cross and think that all you needed was a pep talk or advice, to borrow a phrase? But also, how can you look at the cross and think that the Lord merely just sort of tolerates you and he's just sort of come on with a workaround so that you can be in his presence? Wretched yet so beloved that he would do all of that because he had to and because he was glad to. Maybe we've forgotten. And, you know, that's exactly where Haggai's going here. He's told us that we probably shouldn't think about rebuilding without some measure of repenting, but he also said this, we certainly shouldn't think that for all our errors that we are beyond God's kindness. He's routed off all the ways in which Israel is forgotten. He's routed off all the ways in which Israel was diminished because they had diminished their sense of the Lord. And he's rattled off all the ways and all the things that led Haggai to step up and say, no more! 
But in the last verse of the passage, notwithstanding everything that Israel has done, verse 19, but I will bless you. I will bless you. No matter all of this, no matter your past, no matter what led to your exile, no matter how you behaved in exile, no matter how you have absolutely forgotten that you were in exile, I will bless you. Your seed's out there. You're not sure if it's going to grow. I'm going to bless you. He has come to bless. And surely that is true because of how he has blessed us in Jesus. Because remember that part at the front end of the passage where he talks about how holiness cannot be transferred? You know, holy meat can't make other things holy, but, but an unclean person can make other things unclean where it spreads. It's what happened to Israel. Everything that they've done is now, everything that they touch is now a function of who they are and they therefore have to repent. But what do we hear of Jesus in 2 Corinthians 5? For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The one who was holy was treated as if he were unholy, so that we who are unholy might be treated as those who are holy. Jesus doesn't dispense with the idea of holiness. He doesn't say, you know what, I don't think those are really even sins anymore. But he does allow what is true of us to be transferred to him and allow what is true of him to be transferred to us. That's the gospel. And on that we must hope. And from that we must repent. That if we probably shouldn't think we can rebuild without repenting, but we certainly shouldn't think that no matter our errors that we're beyond God's kindness, then, then where does that lead us? Here's where it leads us, and we're about to end this. We begin, or we end where we begin. I think it begins with a search. And that's why we read at the beginning of the service what the psalmist says in Psalm 139. Search me, O God, know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any gravest way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. It starts with us asking the question that the psalmist asks of the Lord himself. Search me. Know me. Try me. Let me know if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I mentioned that that's where I was going to kind of end the sermon to my wife and she goes, <laughs> <laughs> she says, how many times though do people like go in prayer and they, and they search and, and then they come out and like they still don't know what needs to change? And she's right. It does require a search. But it also requires something that James says in James chapter 5. Confess your sins one to another. I want to show you a brief clip from a recent episode of Ted Lasso, which, uh, I'll be frank, the last time I quoted to you from Ted Lasso, things have changed in that series that make me go, ah, should I even bring it up? But this moment captures something that we all should reckon with, and it has to do with confession. And here's a moment in which they're about to go into a game, and, well, this happens. Hey, fellas, hold on a second. Um, I need to tell you all something. Um, when I left the match against Tottenham, it, it, it wasn't because uh, you know, my stomach was bothering me. Uh, it, it was because I had a panic attack. 
I've been having them from time to time as of late, and I'm working on it. But I just want y'all to know the truth. We good? good. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Of yeah. course. Yeah. Okay, all right. All right, let's go get them. All right, Richmond on three. Wait! I need to confess something to you. Um, I messed up the time zones on our transfer deadline, which is why we didn't sign up that amazing fullback from Brazil. Oh, my God. It's okay. Okay. It's okay? Yeah. It's okay. All good. Okay. Okay, here we go. I don't read the scouting reports you guys write. I've lied every time they come up. They're boring, and I won't do it. I appreciate that. I, I pretend to get ideas in the moment, but they're just good ideas I've had for months. I just time them to look spontaneous. It's a good move. Good move. Yeah, illusion of the first time. There was one game this season where I was accidentally on mushrooms. Accidentally? I'd been at Jane's house and I drank tea from the wrong pot. Port Vale match. Yeah. Yeah. It won't happen again. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thank you. Do you have anybody in your life to be that vulnerable with? Is there anybody that you share your weaknesses and your sins with? When Andrew talks to you about forming formative friendships, please listen to him. Please listen to him. Because repentance means believing that what you can share is with someone who will understand and will love you. And so that's cute and wonderful and I'll laugh at it too, but it, how, how many of us don't have someone with whom we can have that kind of transparency? If rebuilding requires repenting, then repenting requires a community in which those things we might share. You want to talk to me about it? I'll be happy to. I'll, you'll be met with grace, I promise. Talk to an elder, talk to a pastor, talk to a friend, talk to a member of a community group that you're a part of. Mm, I don't care who. But it's where it goes. And it's where grace begins to show its head. And that's why I want to end with one quote from St. Augustine. St. Augustine. And I want to address the kids in the room real quick because I'd be really curious to know if I were to ask you the question, what's the first image you have of God? If I say, tell me, tell me about God. And I'm not out to insult you, but it would not surprise me if at least several of you thought that maybe God is maybe how you think of the principal at school. Whatever you do, don't make him mad. Right? Like your whole goal in life is don't do anything that would make the principal mad. And if you think that's who God is, I don't blame you because I can understand why you might have adopted that sense. Maybe that's how we give it off. Maybe that's what you hear from me. And if that's, I need to apologize to you and ask you forgiveness because if that's how you think of who God is, that's a cardboard cutout of who the Lord is. If your whole goal in life is to make sure that God isn't mad with you, then we have not communicated to you what it means to know him. And that's why I want to read to you a quote that is very old. It's from a book called The Confessions of St. Augustine. And it's the longest sort of biography that is itself one unceasing prayer. The entire book is written as a prayer 
to the Lord. And I just want you to hear about how he speaks to God. And then ask yourself, is this how you understand the Lord? Or is he like the physician or like just somebody that doesn't, you don't want to make cross? Or is he like the principal that you don't want to make mad? Just listen to this line and ask yourself if this is how you know him. I'm not even going to show you the slide. I just want you to, if you want to close your eyes, you can. But listen, this is him speaking to the Lord. Late have I loved you. Beauty so old and so new. Late have I loved you. See, you were within and I was in the external world and sought you there. And in my unlovely state, I plunged into those lovely created things which you made. You were with me. I was not with you. The lovely things kept me far from you though if they did not have their existence in you they had no existence at all you called and cried out loud and shattered my deafness you were radiant and resplendent you put my flight to put to flight my blindness you were fragrant and i drew in my breath and now pant after you i tasted you and I feel but hunger and thirst for you. You touched me, and I am set on fire to attain the peace which is yours. Is that how you think of him? Is that what you believe of him? Is that how you know him? If that is not, then perhaps mine and your repentance begins there knowing that he is a physician who loves. Knowing that he is one full of grace and of truth. And as we ask him to search and begin to confess to those we might trust and believe that he is one who shatters our deafness, then we will rebuild in new ways. And in time we will give thanks. Let's pray. Uh, Father, it seems too big. A prospect. Uh, maybe it seems too intimidating. Um, but we need you. We need you to take a first step. Remind us of something we've lost. Do the next right thing always believing that there is nothing that we might do that would turn us aside from you. That in your Son, in whose name we pray, there is grace abounding for sinners. Help us to believe that. And on the basis of your kindness to us, a kindness that leads us to repentance, you might show us where we need to change this day. In his name we pray. Amen. Go with this word of benediction. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Let us go forth to serve the world and build up his church as those who love our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The peace and the holiness of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.
See you down there.